Good evening. The subject of my talk tonight is love, pain, and suffering. As a comfortably situated middle-aged bachelor, I must be quite an authority on pain and love, wouldn't you have thought? Now, by pain, I don't mean a nagging discomfort in the intestines. For that matter, by love, I don't mean a nagging discomfort in the intestines either. The question I will put to you this evening, and one which I will attempt to answer, is this. If God loves us, why must we suffer so much? War, pestilence, famine, disease. This is this morning's newspaper. As I'm sure most of you already know, last night a number one bus drove into a column of young Royal Marine cadets in Chatham and killed 23 of them. They were 10-year-old boys, marching, singing, on the way to a boxing match. The road was unlit. The driver didn't see them. It's a terrible accident. No one was to blame except Now, where was God? Why didn't he stop it? What possible point could there be to such a tragedy? Isn't God supposed to be good? Isn't he supposed to love us? Now, that's the nub of the matter, love. What do we mean when we say that God loves us? I think I'm right in saying that by love, most of us mean either kindness or being in love. But surely, when we say God loves us, we don't mean that God is in love with us, do we? Not sitting by the phone, writing letters, love you madly, God kisses and hugs. <laughs> At least I don't think so. Perhaps we mean that he's a kind God. Kindness is the desire to see others happy. Not happy in this way or that, just happy. Not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather. Oh, I do like to see the young people enjoying themselves. What does it matter as long as they're happy? Now here, I'm going to say something which may come as a bit of a shock. I don't think God necessarily wants us to be happy. I think he wants us to be lovable, worthy of love, able to be loved by him. We don't start out all that lovable, if we're honest. What is it that makes someone hard to love? Isn't it what we commonly call selfishness? Selfish people are hard to love because so little love comes out of them. Now, God makes us free, free to be selfish. But he adds to that a mechanism by which he can penetrate our selfishness and wake us up to the presence of others in the world. And that mechanism is called suffering. To put it another way, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You may ask why it must be pain. 
Why couldn't he wake us more gently with laughter or violins? Because the dream from which we must be awakened is the dream that all is well. Now that is the most dangerous illusion of them all. Self-sufficiency is the enemy of salvation. If you are self-sufficient, you have no need of God. If you have no need of God, you do not seek Him. If you do not seek Him, you will not find Him. God loves us, so He makes us the gift of suffering. Through suffering, we release our hold on the toys of this world and know that our true good lies in another world. We are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men, the blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. The suffering in the world is not the failure of God's love for us. It is that love in action. For believe me, this world that seems so substantial to us is no more than the shadowlands. Real life has not yet begun. Renowned author and intellectual C.S. Lewis is universally remembered as one of the greatest Christian thinkers of the 20th century. Nearly 60 years after his death, his written works continued to remain bestsellers and have inspired millions of believers to a deeper understanding of their own salvation. It may seem surprising that such a champion for the cause of Christ was an avowed atheist until the age of 33. But his personal story provides revealing insight into how he came to be, as he himself described it, surprised by joy. No, I was the most reluctant convert in England. There was nothing I had a greater hatred of than being told what to do. That was the marvelous attraction of atheism. It satisfied my desire to be left alone. The God of the Bible was a bullying busybody. And then, quite by accident, I read a book by G.K. Chesterton, The Everlasting Man. When I was in hospital during the First World War, his book was the only one around. Compared to being in the trenches, hospital was a holiday. But not Chesterton's book. Not only was he a good writer, but his arguments had an irritating logic to them. He begins with a story. Uh, a young boy, living on a farm, decides to go on a quest to find the burial mound of a legendary giant. He climbs a mountain and then turns to look back at his farm below. What he sees from that distance is that the land his home is built on bears the impression of an enormous figure. You see, 
He'd always lived right on top of the giant's gravesite, but he was too close to recognize it. It's a metaphor. The foundation he built his arguments on based on logical, historical criteria, but God cannot be proven historically, which allowed me to put Chesterton out of my mind for years, until two very different conversations forced me to reconsider. The first was with my friend J.R.R. Tolkien, a devout believer, and the other with T.J. Weldon, a rabid atheist. Weldon is a well-respected professor of classical studies. He's a complete cynic and the most bitter man I'd ever met. Well, I had him in for a drink one evening, and the subject of the Gospels came up. I nearly fell off my chair when this man said there was strong evidence supporting the historical authenticity of the New Testament. Looks like it really happened, he said to me. When I told him how shocked I was to hear him say such a thing, he couldn't have been more embarrassed and eager to leave. But afterwards, I couldn't stop thinking about it. If the most militant atheist I knew believed the Gospels to be true, what escape was possible? Then, a few weeks later, Tolkien opened my eyes to a different perspective. We were taking a stroll after dinner one evening. We were on Addison's Walk. It's a path on campus under enormous beech trees. And we were discussing myths. I told Tolkien I enjoyed them artistically, but basically regarded them as fiction, as lies. Tolkien stopped me. You're wrong, he said. They're far from lies. They're man's way of expressing truths that would otherwise go unspoken. They hint at the life God made for us. He told me to look closely at my reactions to them. He said, when you read stories about gods coming to earth and sacrificing themselves, you're moved, as long as you read them anywhere but the Bible. But the story of Christ is the greatest myth at the heart of human history. He said pagan myths were born out of God expressing himself through the poets. But the myth of Christ is God expressing himself through himself. What sets it apart is that Christ actually walked the earth among us. His dying and rising again transforms myth into truth and transforms the lives of all who believe in him. And that's your choice, he said, to believe or disbelieve. My choice was to go back and examine the evidence. That night, I went home and I began to reread the New Testament critically. And as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever the Gospels are, they aren't myths. They aren't artistic enough. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work. Most of the life of Jesus is unknown to us, and writers building a legend. 
wouldn't allow that to happen. That afternoon, I drove to the zoo and accepted that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. This is London. You will now hear a statement by the Prime Minister. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British Ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. When England entered the Second World War, Lewis attempted to re-enlist in the British forces, but was declined by the Ministry of War. Instead, he was recruited to give a series of BBC radio addresses to the British public, who were now suffering under what came to be known as the Blitz. Hitler's nightly bombings of London and other cities and towns throughout Britain. These radio broadcasts were later collected and published under the title Mere Christianity, becoming one of his most enduring works of nonfiction. As was later observed by the head of the Royal Air Force, the war, the whole of life, everything tended to seem pointless. We needed, many of us, a key to the meaning of the universe. Lewis provided just that. I believe our cause to be, as human causes go, very righteous. And I therefore believe it to be a duty to participate in this war. War creates no absolutely new situation. It merely aggravates the permanent human situation so that we can no longer ignore it. Human life has always been lived at the edge of a precipice. Human culture has always had to exist under the shadow of something infinitely more important than itself. We are mistaken when we compare war to normal life. Life has never been normal. Even those periods we think of as most tranquil, like the 19th century, turn out on closer inspection to be full of crises, alarms, difficulties, emergencies. Never, in peace or war, commit your virtue or your happiness to the future. Out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, class envy, 
empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. All schemes of happiness centered in this world were always doomed to final frustration. No, the present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. If we are all going to be destroyed by a bomb, let that bomb come when it finds us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, chatting with our friends, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies. Of course, any microbe can do that. But they need not dominate our minds. No person knows how bad they are until they've tried to be good. A silly idea, now current, is that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the true strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by lying down. Just as you find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the true strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation truly means. The only complete realist. Literature was one of C.S. Lewis's great passions, and his written works emerged from a wide swath of literary styles. From the Chronicles of Narnia, classic children's stories filled with Christian symbolism and fantasy, to the biting prophetic satire of the Screwtape Letters, and the brilliant Christian apologetics of mere Christianity, miracles, and the problem of pain. Lewis's works were translated into over 50 languages and became an inspiration to believers around the world. Somehow, amidst his teaching and writing, he also managed to maintain a personal correspondence with hundreds of fans who wrote to him. One of these was the poet Joy Grisham, who wrote often to Lewis from America and eventually emigrated to England to become one of Lewis's closest friends and eventually his wife.
Recently, a friend of mine, a brave and Christian woman, collapsed in terrible pain. One minute, she was fit and well. The next, she was in agony. She is now in hospital, suffering from advanced bone cancer and almost certainly dying. Why? I find it hard to believe that God loves her. If you love someone, you don't want them to suffer. You you can't bear it. You want to take their suffering onto yourself. Now, if even I feel that way, why doesn't God? And not just once in history on the cross, but again and again today. Now. It's at times like this that we must remind ourselves of the very core of the Christian faith. There are other worlds than this. This world that seems so real to us is no more than a shadow of the life to come. If we believe that all is well in this present life, if we can imagine nothing more satisfactory than this present life, then we are under a dangerous illusion. All is not well. Believe me. All is not well. In September of 1947, Lewis was featured on the cover of Time magazine for his brilliant and satirical novel, The Screwtape Letters. Originally serialized in the Guardian newspaper, The Screwtape Letters are a series of messages from a demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood. Screwtape is a senior devil whose job is to increase the store of malice and misery on earth. Under Screwtape's charge is his nephew, Wormwood, a novice devil. The letters between them record their efforts to turn a young man from his newly adopted Christianity back to his previous unrepentant life and attitudes. Of all of my books, there was only one that I took no pleasure in writing, and that was the Screwtape Letters. Though I'd never written anything more easily, I never wrote with less enjoyment. At the time, I was thinking of objections to the Christian life and decided to put them into the form, that's what the devil would say. But making bads good, goods bad, gets to be fatiguing. It was easy to twist one's mind into the diabolical attitude, but it was not fun or not for very long. Each letter was dry and gritty going, every trace of beauty, freshness, geniality, 
had to be excluded. It almost smothered me before I was done. You see, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall regarding the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to take an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail an atheist or an occultist with the same delight. No, as Martin Luther said, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to text of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. And scorning the work of the devil is the book's primary aim. Uh, Now, with your permission... I would like to read an excerpt from the letters. In doing so, I beg your forgiveness in advance for my meager and untutored abilities as an actor. My dear Wormwood, I noted with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones or signposts. Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church-going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for a church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes man a critic, where God wants him to be a pupil. We want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, but that those who do may acquire the uneasy intensity and defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or clique. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can once get into the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite confident about his soul. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all. And more amusing. What we want, if we want men to become Christians at all, is to keep them in the state of mind I call Christianity and. You know, Christianity and the crisis. Christianity and the new psychology. Christianity and the New Order, Christianity and faith healing, Christianity and psychical research, Christianity and vegetarianism, Christianity and politics, 
they must be Christians, let them be Christians with a difference, substitute for the faith itself some fashion with a Christian coloring. What he says, even on his knees about his own salvation, is all parrot talk. At bottom, he believes he's run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinks he's showing great condescension and humility in going to church with all these smug, commonplace neighbors. No. His increasing reputation... His widening circle of acquaintances, his sense of self-importance, the growing pressure of absorbing an agreeable work built up in him a sense of really being at home in earth, which is exactly what we want. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels he's finding his place in it, while all the time... It's really finding its place in him. We must promote hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives with the deadly, serious passions of self-importance, envy, and resentment. You see, God's ideal is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, if uh, that is his vocation, commits the issue to heaven, washes his mind of the whole subject, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that's passing over him. But we want a man hag-ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present if he think he can attain the one or avert the other. Dependent for his faith on the success or failure of schemes whose end he will not live to see. We want a whole race, perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, never honest, nor kind, nor happy now, but always using as mere fuel to burn on the altar of the future every real gift which is offered them in the present. Never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure in its normal and healthy and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. God made all the pleasure. All our research has not enabled us to produce one. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which the enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Uh, not that that excuses you. I sometimes wonder whether you think you've been sent into the world for your own amusement. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons and daughters. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. 
we are empty and would be filled, he is full and flows over. For we must never forget what is the most repellent and inexplicable trait in the enemy. He really loves the hairless bipeds he's created and always gives back to them with his left hand, but he's taken away with his right. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Somewhat uncomfortable as a public figure, it was during this post-war period that Lewis was offered a knighthood by Queen Elizabeth. In his typically reserved manner, he politely declined and continued his writing and teaching. His collected essays and speeches from this period, published under the title God in the Dock, expressed Lewis's most vigorous defense yet for the cause of Christ. I've heard some people complain that if Jesus was God, as well as man, then his sufferings and death lose all value in their eyes because, well, it must have been so easy for him. Others may very rightly rebuke the ingratitude and ungraciousness of such an objection. But what staggers me is the misunderstanding it betrays. Of course, in one sense, those who make it are right. They've even understated their own case. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier to Jesus because he was God, but were possible only because he was God. But surely, that's a very odd reason for not accepting them. The teacher is able to form letters for the student because the teacher is grown up and knows how to write. This, of course, makes it easier for the teacher, and only because it is easier can he help the child. If the student were to reject him because, uh, well, it's easy for grown-ups, and waited to learn writing from another child who could not write itself and so had no unfair advantage... Well, it wouldn't get on very quickly. (laughs) Another example. If I'm drowning in a rapid river, a man who still has one foot on the bank may give me a hand which saves my life. Now, ought I to shout back uh, between my gas for air, uh, no, that's unfair, you have the advantage, you still have one foot on the bank. That advantage, call it unfair if you like, it's the only reason he can be of any use to me. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? I think that many of us Once Christ has allowed us to overcome one or two obvious sins that were a nuisance, are inclined to feel, though we do not put it into words, that we are good enough. He's done all we wanted him to do, and now we would just be obliged if he would leave us alone. As we say, I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine, when we say this, that we are being humble. 
But that is a fatal mistake. Of course we never wanted, never asked to be made into the sort of creatures he's going to make us into. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended when he made us. He is the inventor. We are only the machine. He is the painter. We are only the picture. How should we know what he means us to be like? And you see, he's already made us something very different than what we were. We may be quite content to remain ordinary people, but he's determined to carry out quite a different plan. And to shrink back from that plan is not humility. It is laziness or cowardice. To submit to it is obedience. And God continued to work in Lewis's life, drawing him toward exactly the kind of obedience that made him such a powerful messenger of Christendom. After a remission in Joy's cancer that allowed the couple a brief and belated honeymoon, she finally surrendered to the disease, leaving Lewis heartbroken, and in great personal pain, an experience that he chronicled in his next book, A Grief Observed. He had come full circle and found through his personal tragedy a deeper and more personal understanding of the faith that he so vigorously championed throughout his career. Not much more to say. I love you, Joy. I love you so much. You've made me so happy. I, I didn't know I could be so happy. You're the truest person I've ever known. No shadows here, only darkness and silence, the pain that cries like a child. It ends, as all affairs of the heart, with exhaustion. Only so much pain is possible. Then rest. Sweet Jesus, be with my beloved wife, Joy. Forgive me if I love her too much. Have mercy on us both. We are like blocks of stone, out of which 
The sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. And so it comes about that when I'm quiet, when I'm quiet, she returns to me. There she is, in my mind, in my memory, coming toward me, and I love her again as I loved her before, knowing that I will lose her again, be hurt again. So you can say, if you like, that Jack Lewis has no answer to the question at all. Except this. I've been given the choice twice in my life. The boy chose safety. The man chooses suffering. I went to my wardrobe this morning. I, I was looking for my old brown jacket, the one I used to wear before. And then I remembered you'd carried out one of your purges there, just before we went to Greece. I think it was. I find I can live with the pain after all. The pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. Only shadows, Joy. <laughs> 